the announcement about uh, those that might want to contribute to uh, help the shavers. Uh, we encourage you to do that, but we also uh, encourage you, if you have some time available or are willing to make time available, uh, they still have a few things to do. And uh, so, uh, by all means, uh, we'll be communicating over the week by email and other things, but uh, talk directly to the shavers. Uh, I don't know how many people, we didn't count yesterday, but there were at least 30 people in their house. It's a good thing they have a big house because we were, it was still getting a little tight at times, but there's a lot of work to do. Uh, Their whole house was suited up by a fire that uh, took place in their basement, and uh, it's going to take a little while till they get that all back in livable condition. So please pray for them also. I can't imagine that your nerves aren't about shot by now, so... Uh, Anyway, so thanks for helping everyone that helped and anyone for the future. We're going to turn your attention, if you would please, to Genesis chapter 8. I've called it Hope in the Storm. Think about this. You have just been saved by God. A flood is compassing the whole earth. It's all covered. It's all totally destroyed except what's in the ark, and you go, praise the Lord, we're in the ark. I'll tell you what. I'm not Noah, and I've never been in that circumstance, but here's what I'm thinking. Is this my coffin? (laughs) You know, it doesn't mean I don't believe God, but reality is you've been in there for 300 and some days. It doesn't smell too good in there. Your wife's getting on your nerves. Your sons are, well, they are like they always were. And their wives are not exactly who you were hoping they would be. You know what? Here's what it comes down to. I don't know. And my sanctified imagination says that it got a little tense at times in there. And I'm going to guess that at times... Noah's like, yeah, I trusted the Lord, and he said I was righteous, and I'm glad I'm right with God, and he was gracious to me. But at the same time, man, this has taken forever. Am I, am I totally all wet, or do we get that way? I mean, I'm thoroughly convinced, and I have been for 27 years, God wants me a garden chapel and to be a pastor. Well, I'll tell you what, there are a few times in there that I go, what did I get myself in for? You know, and I can't imagine Noah and the others on the ark didn't feel a little the same way. And as I was looking at this, I realized that there's judgment. And in that judgment, the bad guys, the people that heart was intent, uh, continually intent on evil, they got judged, their life is over, they're dead, they're destroyed. But why in the world am I in this floating coffin? I'm the one God said was okay. I'll tell you what, maybe you never thought about Noah that way. I don't know what he thought. So I'm not telling you that's dogmatic. But you know what? Every time someone sins, every time you sin or someone else sins, other people are affected by what you did. And the judgment that comes on them and the consequences of that affects other people. The closer you are to a person, the more their judgment and the consequences of their judgment affects you. Ask the sailors on the ship with Jonah if Jonah's sin affected them. You can go right down the list. If it's your spouse 
or your children or your parents, it's really close. If it's somebody in the church, it is close. You know what? If it's a friend, it's close too. The closer you are to the person, the more the consequences of the judgment affect you. In this case, it's Noah. He's the one being saved, but yet the consequences of the judgment on those that were not believers also affected him. Sometimes even being right with God, doing the right thing, being in the right place is very difficult. I cannot imagine that this was Sunshine City inside here. Just remember, they're in an ark. It's not exactly spacious. It doesn't have nice windows around it. And the sky is dark a lot of this time. It's raining. Think about that dark, dreary days. It gets a little depressing. I believe that Noah was just like us, and he had to deal with all of those same things. But there is hope in the middle of the storm. Last night, I I came home from the sweetheart banquet. I went back, and I started finishing my sermon and looking over, and I'm like, wow, this is the same thing as Bev and Roy Shirk were talking to us about. Yeah, they had some storm in their life, but they kept emphasizing there's hope, there's hope, there's hope. And I totally agree with them. And today, the sermon is in that direction. Why can we have hope in those times? By the way, just before we get there, this is the most well-documented year in all of the Bible. Many people poo-hoo the chronology of Genesis and say, you know, we're not sure this was, and there's big gaps and all these kinds of things. Truth of the matter is, when it comes right down to even just one year, God has it down to the day. Now, that's not my sermon. That's kind of stuff for study. But the truth is, it works out. For approximately, and I think it's right, 377 days they were in the ark with the door closed. And uh, during that time, a lot of it was rough seas, a lot of things were taking place. And even seven days before that, D minus seven, they went in seven days ahead and the animals came in and you know the preparation time. So it was a considerable length of time. And God has it documented down to the day, and you can follow it through if you look at Genesis chapter 7 and 8. But today, we're looking at Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 1, where it says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle, and then he caused the wind to grow blow across the earth, and the water subsided. Notice that at the end of judgment, there is... The promise that God remembers. Remember, why are they in there? Because God's going to preserve them alive so they can repopulate the earth. He saved them because they were righteous, but he's going to use them to repopulate the earth. So there's a promise. It's not going to be your coffin. There's an interesting thing, and I'm going to run out of time quick this morning. But at the end of 377 days in there, not one single death had taken place in the whole year. All the animals survived. Think about this. If one animal died of all the unclean animals, a whole species would have been wiped out because there would have been no way of reproducing after the flood. I don't believe. And it's very clear at the end of the chapter, they all got out alive. And so it's a miracle in itself. I I mentioned last week the whole thing is supernatural. God used many natural things, 
but it's supernatural at its core. God remembers. He keeps His promises, as we should. It says in verse 2 that all the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky was restrained and uh, that happened and the water was up for 150 days. And we're going to see what happens at the 150. But during that time, it would have been the waters coming up from the deep, the rain coming down. It was a massive destruction. When you see a mountain that has curved uh, layers of stone, when you see fossils, when you get oil to put in your car, when you have gas to put in your furnace at home, when you see fossils, it all came as a result of that catastrophe that brought utter destruction to everyone and everything that wasn't in the ark. We'll see how that happened in the point number two. And so at the end of those 150 days, and we know exactly what it was, it says the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The the photograph I have here is the most famous of the mountains of Mount Ararat. Notice it doesn't say Mount Ararat. It says mountains, plural. So we don't know exactly which one it was. This is the biggest one. It could have been this one. We just simply don't know. Because as this was happening, some very different things were happening. The world was being reformed because of the flood event. And so the ark is floating in the water, as all vessels that float in the water do. It sinks a little below, and it rested on the top of the mountain. Now remember, you cannot see any land at this point at all, but it bottoms out. You know, nobody that's a fisherman likes that because you're going to tear up the bottom of the boat. You could be in really big trouble. But that's exactly what happens. They are kind of stuck on the top of there. Instead of a sandbar bar they're stuck on, they're stuck on the top of the mountain. And that's where it is. But here's the point. The water is now going down. God has remembered those that are in there. So remember, when judgment is coming, whether it's judgment on you or judgment on others, and you're getting the splattering and the consequences from it, God remembers His promises. He had a promise. You're going to repopulate the earth. You're going to make it through. Number two, God gives hope at the end of judgment. Continuing on in verse 5. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month and on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. At this point, they could look out the window of the ark and they could see the tops of some other mountains. Exactly what, how it was, we simply do not know exactly. But for the first time in all of that time, they're able to see dry land. The top of mountains is not exactly where you grow crops, so it's probably a rock outcropping that's sticking out. And it's a very, very small portion of the dry land that we see today. Now, how did that all happen? You can turn with me if you want. I'm going to do it rather quickly. But if you turn and look at Psalm 104, I believe you see the process that God used. You may have never thought about this before, but God used water two times to transform the earth as we know it. During creation, you'll remember that the earth was created and completely surrounded in water. 
And then He said, let the dry land appear. And out of the water, the land came up and obviously the sea went down. Well, guess what? That was the first time that water and land are forming each other and and things are happening because of that. And the landscape is transformed. At the flood, the same thing happens. Now, for a totally different reason. That was just the process of creation that God used. In this case, it's the process of judgment that God brings the water upon the earth. And at the end of that, it said in the very beginning of the the passage we started looking at, it says the water subsided. It wasn't simply because the wind was blowing and evaporating the water. That would happen, yes, just like it does today. But it says the water subsided. That's more than just evaporated. Psalm 104 gives us that process. Now, there's no doubt there are people that would argue, well, this is talking about creation, and others would argue that it's talking about the flood. So, Paul, which one is it? It's both. When you look at it, there are some things that absolutely speak of it had to be creation. And there are other things that are said there that absolutely have to to be about the flood. So all it's saying is God used water two times and he puts them both together in this passage. And it says in verse four, uh, 5 of Psalm 104, he established the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. At this point, it doesn't talk about before he had the second act of creation and had the dry land appear, we don't know what it looked underneath the water. Could have been perfectly round. It doesn't say it was. It doesn't say it wasn't. But it never talks about mountains that are under the deep. It just simply says the water covered the earth. So it could have been perfectly round. We just simply don't know. But it came out. And so there were no mountains mentioned. But the whole earth was covered with the deep. And the deep is the oceans, the sea as we know it from the very beginning of Scripture. Then it says the waters were standing above the mountains. We know that there were mountains before the flood. How do I know that? Because in the flood event, the water rose and covered all the mountains by about 21 21 uh, 21 to 22 feet of water, uh, 15 cubits. So we know that. And it was standing above that. It's definitely at that point talking about the flood, and there's one more thing. But then it goes on to say in verse 7, At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place which you established for them. There's no indication that when he had the dry land appear that there was lightning and thunder and all of those types of things. But at the flood, there definitely would have been. But then he says something in verse 9. He says, you set a boundary that it may not pass over so that they will never return to cover the earth. This has to be referring to the flood because God made it clear at the end of the flood that he would never again allow that to happen doesn't mean you won't have tsunamis or big waves or any of those things or regional or local flooding. doesn't mean that. But he made a promise that never again is that going to happen. Never made that promise in Genesis chapter 1 when he created. So I believe both of them are in here. 
And uh, in fact, as in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 22, it says this, For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so that it cannot pass over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot cross over it. That was not true at the creation, but it was absolutely true after the flood. We'll see that at the end of the chapter here. But continuing on in verse 6, it says, And it came about at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Now the water has been going down. Remember, the ark was stuck on top of the mountain. Now the water is going down. Noah waits a while, and he releases a raven and a dove. I know a little bit about birds and very little about them. But a raven will eat just about anything that's available. Doesn't need a whole lot of stability. It's a scavenger. It goes out and never comes back. The Bible says it went from thing to thing. Remember, there were some tops of the mountains there. Uh, Probably nothing growing on those. And there would have been things floating on the water because of the total destruction. Raven had no problem continuing on. Never came back to the ark. The dove, on the other hand, is something that's a very different animal. It needs stability and security, and it only builds nests and where it's very safe and secure and peaceful and those kinds of things. It comes right back. Reaches out his hand, brings it back in the window. By the way, here is the window. Later on, we're going to talk about a covering. I believe they're two different things. Do I understand it? No. But there's a window. We knew that from before. And then it says at the end, the ark became a convertible ark. I didn't know if you all knew that or not, but the ark was convertible because he took the cover off. I don't know what that looks like. I just know what the Bible says, and I'm going to take it for what it says. But the dove comes back, and he waits another five days, and he lets a dove out again. This time, the dove comes back with an olive branch. Now, that's a sign of hope. Because up until that point, it's rocky mountaintop sticking out. It's, yeah, a raven, a crow can continue living, but not a dove. It comes back with an olive branch. It's hope. Life has begun to be renewed on the earth. But the dove is back in. And so he waits another seven days, and then he sends out the dove. And this time, the dove did not come back. Now, I'll I'll reveal a few things about how old I am, Andre. Uh, You know, back when I was a farm kid and we grew up in Grantville, uh, we didn't have a lot. We were electronically challenged. We had one radio in the barn that played all the time, and it only played one station, WLBR Lebanon, Pennsylvania. And it was one of those stations. It's probably why I'm the way I am. So am I goofy? It's because my parents played this radio station all the time. That's good and bad. This was a radio station that, uh, like I said, played all the time. It had all the Phillies baseball games on, so I became a Phillies baseball fan. It had the Indianapolis 500 on it. It had the Daytona 500 on it, so maybe that's why I'm a motorhead. I don't know. And it also played country music, gospel music, and at nighttime it played rock and roll. So uh, listen to all these things. To me, it wasn't a big deal. It was like, okay, I guess this is what it is. And uh, I think my parents still listen to that same station uh, all the time. But the point is, they would play these songs, and one of the songs that they would play over and over again, and as I was in my study uh, 
preparing this, I got to the, the dove thing, and in my mind, a song started going that I haven't heard for, I don't know, probably 40 years I haven't heard this song. It started going, on the wings of a snow white dove. Anybody know that? Oh, the old folks know it. Okay, hey, all the old folks know. A lot of the young people won't even know. But you know what? It was like a country song, kind of a Christian song mixed together, and that's what a lot of old of those kinds of songs. But the last stanza said this. Now, by the way, the Bible doesn't say the dove was white. That's the country music version of the Bible, okay? They just added that in. But it says, When Noah had drifted on the flood many days, he searched for land in various ways. Troubles he had some. Boy, that's an understatement. But wasn't forgotten. He, that is God, sent him his love on the wings of a dove. And that just started playing in my mind while I was studying this. And I thought, I'll share that with you. That way, those of you that don't think I'm that old uh, will know how old I really am. But the point is, God showed hope. And that hope was showed a little at a time. The raven went out, didn't come back. Ah, a tiny bit, but that's not real good. God comes back, eh, it's not so good. Comes back with an olive. Hey, there's, there's, there's a ray at the end. Shavers, there's a ray at the end, okay? You know, there's a ray at the end. And then the dove doesn't come back. And there's still going to be a time before they can put their feet on the ground. But God's showing them hope in the midst of destruction, in the midst of being in that giant ark for all that time. God is still showing hope. In the midst of judgment, God shows hope. There is something more to come. And I hope no matter where you are today and what you're thinking today, that you understand this is not the end. Only at the end, the second death, the lake of fire, if you haven't trusted Christ, there's no hope. There, there is no hope. But here and now, there is hope. If you were at the sweetheart banquet, praise the Lord, there's hope no matter what's happened in your marriage. There's hope. There's hope no matter what. That's what I want to get across in this point. God gives hope even in the times of judgment. God gives a new beginning. As you look at the end of this, and I'm looking at verse 13, it comes up that uh, in the 600th year, the first, first year in the first month, on the, uh, on the first of the month, the water dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark. And he looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. This is not the window. This is the convertible ark. How he did it, I don't know. What it looked like, I don't know. But he did it. There's a new beginning. Remember, why were they on the ark to start with? To replenish the earth. And that's exactly what is going to happen. The earth is now dry. It's back. It's been changed greatly. Everything that was known before is different. The mountains are now higher. The valleys are lower because of everything that happened. And I'm not going to go into technical details, but that's what happened. God reworked the earth. By the way, it's a good thing we didn't have environmental laws because God would have violated every single one of them. Okay, Because he totally devastated everything environmentally. It's a whole new beginning. But it's a place of a new beginning. If you're here today, you could trace your ancestry 
to someone that came across on the ark. Your dog can trace its ancestry to dogs that were on the ark. Just go right through there. It is a new beginning. In fact, is it's very interesting because the same commandment that had been given to Adam and Eve in the very beginning to multiply and fill the earth and be fruitful is exactly what it says in verse 17. He said to Noah, bring out every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that it may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. God has given mankind and this world a new beginning. And he wants us to use it to the fullest. And that's what he wants us to do. They're going to come and reproduce and refill the earth. We still live in that. And we still see that no matter what it looks like right now, God is at work and he wants to change things. He may and will bring judgment. It will affect everyone. But he always gives hope and there's always the possibility of a new beginning. And that new beginning can be stronger than the first one. Just remember... Adam and Eve didn't take them too long until they went astray. The new one can be just as good or better. But it doesn't end there because at the end of the judgment or the end of anything in your life, God is still worthy of being worshipped. God still desires to be worshipped. And He's always worthy. It says in verse 20 that Noah build an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Remember, there were 14 of every clean animal and every bird and he took one of each of them. In Sunday school, and by the way, I have no problem if you're a Sunday school teacher and you use the coloring sheet that has Noah with this little altar with a lamb or something on top of it. Don't quit using it because of what I'm saying here, but you're an adult. He is offering all kinds of animals, lots of animals. It it would take him his lifetime to offer them on some little tiny altar. It had to be a big altar for lots of animals. We don't know how many, but it was one of every clean and of the birds. So that's a lot of sacrifices. But what is that worth look like? What does the worship look like? I'm going to give you, I think it's nine things that worship looks like. Many of them starting here. It's not the first act of worship. That would have been Cain and Abel. I'm going to include that, but it starts here. What does our worship look like? First of all, it is always God-centered and focused. Worship is not about the church or it's not about who's sitting next to you. It's not about those things. It's not about buildings. It is God-centered and god focused. If you came here this morning and you said, I'm going to a worship service, praise the Lord. I hope you did. If you came, I'm going to church and I'm going to meet with my friends and my brothers and sisters. I hope you're going to do that. But the truth of the matter is, if that's as far as it goes, you've missed the focus and the core and the target of worship. It is upward. Outward, no problem. That's fellowship. We should worship together and fellowship together. But our focus needs to be upward. 
It's God. It's God-centered. If you sing, you don't sing. By the way, some of you sing really good. I can hear you. But if it's just, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to impress everybody else by my singing this morning, uh, you got the wrong focus. You know, it's God. It's, he is the only one. And by the way, just a reminder, it's not only in the outside that he sees and understands. It's on the inside. So it has to be God-focused. It's exclusively for God. Now, I know when you worship, others will observe you and they'll see what's going on and hopefully be encouraged. I encourage the praise team or who's doing special music or praying or whatever, giving in the offering. You know what? Other people will see you. But if you're doing it for any other reason than exclusively for God, you've got something messed up. It's not what it needs to be. And that's what it says about Noah. He built an altar to the Lord. It wasn't to impress somebody else. It was to the Lord. It was according to the will of God. You say, where do you get that? Well, he told them what to offer, and he did that. And we also know what happens when you try to do it your own way. Remember Cain? He even came back and said, hey, Cain, uh, you know, I This is the right way. And Cain absolutely refused. I'm not going to repeat that sermon. But Cain refused. God came and reminded him, hey, you know what? You got it wrong. Sin's crouching at the door. It's a desire for you. Cain refused to change his view. It has to be according to the will and word of God. It needs to be purposeful and specific. It is not just, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to do it however I want to. He built an altar. It wasn't, I'll do whatever I want to do. No, it was an altar. It was specific. And I encourage you, you know, don't get mad at me, but if it fits. You know what? I encourage you, when you come in, where's your, where's your purpose? What's specific? You know, before you get here, it's really important. If you don't believe me, think it through. Before you get mad at me, think it through, okay? But when you get to bed on Saturday night, do you go to bed Saturday night thinking, yeah, I should go to bed earlier, but I'll I'll be sleepy tomorrow morning? No, it starts then. It's specific. It's purposeful. When you get up in the morning, it's like, well, I I should have left five minutes ago, but (sighs) I still didn't. Well, it doesn't matter. By the way, if you're late, don't turn around and go home. But think about this. Is it really focused on him? Is it exclusively for him? Is it purposeful? Is it specific? I want to be there. I want to be a part of it. When we're singing, when we're praying, when we're teaching, preaching, or whatever, are you, are you really engaged? Because you need to be. It encompasses all of who you are. Your thinking, your emotions, your body. Is your head... Are you thinking what you're supposed to be thinking? Are your emotions emoting what they're supposed to emote? Is your body where it's supposed to be at the right time? Is your mouth open when it's supposed to be and closed when it's supposed to be? Those things. It's very specific. I don't know how it applies to you, but it's true. Think about it. We wouldn't do that to other people. We need to make sure that when we worship, it's very specific and very purposeful. It is also by faith. You can never do anything that pleases God on your own power. It never happens. It is 
always an act of faith. It is by faith Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. It's always that direction. Never. It always costs you. You go, ah, oh, man, I don't feel like worshiping God. You know what? If you're going to be real about it, and I will, I don't always feel like worshiping God. It costs too much. It requires too much. And it does. Because God expects us to give back to him the first and the best. To put him first in that direction. Cost me. You're going to give in the offering? It costs you. You're going to get up and worship with other Christians? It costs you. You name it. It doesn't matter what it is. It costs me to worship God. You say, I thought this is all about him and what's it have to do with cost? The cost is in all kinds of different directions. You've got to put those thoughts that are distracting you out of your mind because you got what? But my house was on fire. Sorry I'm pecking on the shavers today. But our house was on fire. We can't live in it right now. You know what? If you're going to really worship, you have to go, okay, for at least an hour, I'm going to focus on him exclusively. Sorry for shavers. Don't get mad at me, but you're just a great illustration this morning. You know what? But you know what? Your house may not have been on fire, but you might have had an argument with your spouse this morning or the week or your boss Monday morning. You know that it's going to be chaos and you're thinking that direction or whatever happened in the meantime. You know what? It doesn't matter. We need to understand worship costs me and it always has. The first and the best is what... um, Exodus chapter uh, 23, verse 19 says, it needs to be pure. It is always what God told us. Remember, no unclean animals were sacrificed. You go, how does that apply to us? Simply this. You can't take something that God says is wrong and say, I'm going to use this for the Lord. In other words, sin or sinfulness or wickedness of any sort can never please and worship the Lord. It just cannot do that. just doesn't work that way. And so you can't try to fool yourself into thinking, well, I can do something wrong and God will be worshipped at the same time. It just doesn't. You say, what's that going to look like? I'll tell you what it is. Start with this one. How about attitude? <laughs> just start with that one. You know, what's my attitude toward God? If it's lousy and I'm mad at God, how in the world are you going to worship it just doesn't work that way. It's need to be, uh, whoops, I got ahead of myself. It's extensive. It's all-encompassing. God doesn't want you to worship with part of who you are. It's with all of who you are. It's all of me for all of him. That's always what it needs to be. I got ahead of myself and got it all goofed up. The end result is, if we worship, God is pleased. Notice what it says in verse 21. It says, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, and the summer and winter and day and night shall never cease. He makes a promise. The context would say, It's in response to Noah's worship. Now, I know God could have made that without Noah's worship. There's no doubt in my mind. God is God. He doesn't need you and he doesn't need me. But 
the context says, hey, Noah just did what he asked him to do. Noah just worshipped him. And then God's response. He smells the sacrifices. It's pleasing to God. And God responds to that. And I believe he does. I believe we see that in Cain and Abel. We see that here. And we're going to see Abraham and others as we go through Genesis. Every time you're going to see this basic pattern emulate from that act of worship. It's just going to happen. One last thing before we close, and that is, hold it a second. It says the earth is always going to remain. And you told us last week, and I did, that God is eventually going to burn the whole earth up. So that's a contradiction. If you look at exactly what it says, it is absolutely not a contradiction. Because this time, he destroyed it. But night and day continued on, and seed time and all those things that we just mentioned, they continue on. But when God finally destroys the earth, it is completely destroyed. There are no more days and nights and seasons and any of those other things. It is a complete and utter destruction, as it says in Second Peter chapter 3. It is totally burning them up. The elements are going to melt right down to the smallest part of the creation. It's going to be burned up, totally, utterly destroyed. That's not what he did in the flood. With the flood, there was hope. There was a fulfillment of the promise. There was a new beginning. But there is a time, as I mentioned before, the second death, when there is no more new beginning, no more hope. Because God is a righteous God. He's a holy God and a wrathful God. At the same time, he is also, as we've seen today, a merciful, generous, and loving God. He's both of those, all of those in one person, in a perfect combination. Do I understand that? Absolutely not. If I understood that, you'd have to bow and worship to me because I'd be God. None of us can understand that. And believe me, I don't. But I do know that God says this about himself. And he wants us to have hope. He wants us to have a new beginning. No matter where you find yourself today, there's hope. But it's only through him. And I'm going to tell you, you start worshiping him, you'll start to see the hope. And God absolutely does respond. Let's all stand together as we pray. Father, you are indeed a gracious, loving, and merciful God. But, Lord, you also are a God who will bring judgment when people just thumb their noses at you and do their own thing. Lord, I thank you that even in the midst of judgment, you give hope. You give new beginnings. And, Lord, you do save us. Lord, I pray that anyone that's here that isn't sure that they've trusted Christ, they they don't have that hope. I pray that they would trust Christ for their salvation, for their forgiveness of sins. His blood on the cross is the only thing that makes that possible. Just like the ark made it the only thing that made it possible for anyone to survive at the time of the flood. Lord, guide our thoughts, our hearts, our intentions, our words and our actions that we would worship you with everything we are and everything you demand of us. We thank you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless. Go with God.